Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. This program explores how the Bible influenced the American founding and the creation of the Constitution. The evening began with a lecture by Daniel Dreisbach, author of Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. The conversation then continued with a lively discussion with leading religion scholars Marcy Hamilton of the University of Pennsylvania, Daniel Mark of Villanova University, and author historian Russell Shorto. Here's NCC President and CEO Jeffrey Rosen to summarize the lecture and kick off the discussion. So I heard Professor Dreisbach make uh, among the following points. The Bible was influential to the framers and to the American founding. That the framers differed in their uh, conceptions of Orthodox Christianity, ranging from the more heterodox thinkers such as Paine, Franklin, and Jefferson, to the more uh, ones in the middle like Madison, to the more orthodox ones like Adams, but that all frequently cited the Bible and that the Bible was more frequently cited than John Locke. Deuteronomy cited more frequently than John Locke. I heard that memorable phrase that he uh, attributed to Adams, that the Bible is the most Republican of, of books because it uh, inculcated the civic virtue and self-restraint that was necessary for democratic uh, citizenship. And then he said that the Bible had at least three influences on the American founders. First, that the conception of original sin influenced the separation of powers. <clears throat> Second, he said that the framers looked to particular biblical institutions, in particular the notion that the uh, Jewish uh, uh, republic was the most republican of all uh, of the ancient republics. And third, he said that biblical provisions influence particular constitutional provisions, such as the Book of Nahum's influence on conceptions of double jeopardy. So lots of provocative points in there. Russell, if I may begin with you, your, your piece had the great title, How Christian Were the Founders. So you've now heard Professor Dreisbach. Are you persuaded by his arguments that although the founders differed in their allegiance to traditional and orthodox Christianity, all were influenced by the Bible and that the Bible did indeed influence the American Constitution or not? Um. First of all, I'm impressed by your ability to summarize. <laughs> I had the, the text here so I could uh, cheat. <laughs> um, uh, certainly, the America in the 18th century was overwhelmingly Christian, overwhelmingly a Protestant nation. Virtually all of the founders grew up with um, the Bible. Uh, and so to say that uh, it, was part, it was a major influence on them, I think, is without question. What I find myself wondering is, in, in uh, Professor Dreisbach's very erudite um, uh, talk, is he's, he's identifying um, what, what, they were, what their project was. And if he is uh, simply stating it as it narrowly, which is what I think he used the word modest, making the modest uh, claim that they were influenced in framing the Constitution by the Bible, then I think that goes without saying almost. Um, but I wonder if he has a broader goal. And I wonder if that, I mean, if, for example, that broader goal was uh, to ally himself, to add to a body of scholarship from the religious right that is trying to 
assert that America truly was a Christian nation in its founding and to use that as kind of a wedge because then once you do that, then you, you allow for uh, uh, certain precedents on uh, whether it's gay marriage or, or um, how discriminating against Muslims. I mean, you, you, you open kind of a Pandora's box there. So in terms of what the ultimate goal of this presentation is, I think if it's, if it's the narrow goal, I can, I can uh, go along with that. And if it's a broader goal, then I think it's, there's something problematic in that because while the founders were in fact overwhelmingly Christian, they, I mean, it's all the more remarkable that they took this step of making sure that the Constitution was not in itself privileging Christianity or any religion. And that in fact, the only mention of religion in the Constitution is Congress shall make no laws concerning an establishment of religion. They're basically saying government's going to be here and religion's going to be there. Thanks. That's very thoughtful. And as you say, uh, one could accept uh, Professor Dreisbach's modest claim that the Bible was influential to the Constitution, but disagree vigorously, as scholars do, about the implications for that about contemporary doctrine. Let's start our first round, at least, with the more modest claim. Uh, Daniel Mark, are you persuaded by Professor, uh, by Daniel, if I may, by his uh, broad uh, thesis that the framers had differing degrees of orthodox allegiance, but were broadly influenced by the Bible? And if you want to tell us more about the particular gradations of, uh, of, of, of faith that the different founders ascribe to, that might be interesting as well. Uh, sure, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me here as well. It's an honor to be uh, among such di distinguished commentators and a, a wonderful lecturer. He actually put me in a hard position uh, when I actually agree with most of what he said. It's much better to come in and have a lot to say uh, in disagreement. Uh, so I am largely uh, persuaded uh, by the claim, and I also do see it in the context of a broader uh, a broader project, although not the one uh, that you say. Uh, for all of their differences, and you're absolutely right, of course, that there was a large spectrum of observance from founders who were uh, cutting out uh, the parts where Jesus performs miracles out of their personal copies of the Bible, all the way to, as you say, uh, much more orthodox people um, like John Adams. Um, for all of their disagreements, um, one thing, for example, the, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists had a lot to disagree about. They fought bitterly over the ratification of the Constitution. But one thing they agreed on uh, was that the republic required virtue, uh, a republic if you can keep it. And that virtue required religion. Um, when I teach introductory political theory uh, at Villanova, um, we read uh, Aristotle and then Augustine, and I ask them to think about uh, the different views of human nature and how the different view views of human nature uh, inform different views of the role of government. Um, and uh, it's kind of a trick question because the fact that we might see Augustine, uh, because of the his view of the doctrine of original sin, as much more pessimistic about human nature than, let's say, Aristotle, who sees man as a political animal, a kind of a natural telos for the human to be in political life, um, even though we see it the way we don't know um, whether uh, we don't know whether one or the other points to a view of more government or less government. On one hand, the pessimistic view might point to more government because the government is needed to restrain these wicked and corrupt people. On the other hand, who's going to populate the government? Uh, the same wicked and corrupt people. And so, so it doesn't necessarily point to one uh, or the other. The Federalists thought, as we heard in the lecture, um, that ambition would check ambition, as we read in the Federalist Papers, or vice would check vice. Uh, and that, would one, that was one way to contend with the reality of the lack of virtue. The Anti-Federalists went further. The Anti-Federalists thought 
um, well, gee, not only uh, are you going to endanger us by putting power uh, in the hands of necessarily corrupt people, that the vices would mul be multiplied through their exercise of power in a national government under the Constitution, but that actually the system being adopted under the Constitution would undermine virtue directly because it was built to create a commercial society. Uh, and a commercial society based on profit um, would be something that would ultimately uh, be very harmful. Um, and so I think an intervention like the one we heard tonight um, is in part in the context of that broader concern, uh, namely that for all the things that the Constitution builds into its brilliant and in many ways successful design in order to ensure um, that naturally that, that fallen beings uh, could still have government and still uh, keep a republic um, for all of its designs without virtue, um, without virtue, uh, the republic would not survive. And whether we like it or not, um, the only cultural system that's been proven uh, to transmit values and teach virtue from generation to generation is religion. And that's why the founders across the broad spectrum really agreed um, that we needed religion to teach virtue uh, because we needed virtue to keep the republic. Thank you very much for that. Marcy Hamilton, you are among the most uh, eloquent uh, opponents in the, in the country of the idea that this is a Christian nation and of, uh, a defender of, uh, of the separation of church and state doctrinally, but just on the very modest historical claim, or on, on the historical claim that the founders believed that uh, religion was necessary to inculcate the self-restraint and virtue on which republicanism triumphed, and the surprising historical claim that the Jewish nation was the first perfect republic what do you make of that? I think there's been an unfortunate slippage in the discussion tonight. Uh, there are founders and there are framers. The founding generation was religious in the sense that there was a religious identity that many of them shared. But the, what they shared was diversity. It was the Quakers in, the, in Pennsylvania who didn't let anybody else serve in public office but Quakers. Because only Quakers had the relationship with God that was adequate to serve in the government. It was the Puritans that killed Baptists and Quakers in Massachusetts. It is a false equivalence to talk about one category of religious believers at the time of the founding or the framer, framing. Instead, it was a teeming battle of sex many of which did not want to live with each other, many of which shoved each other out. There was a deep identity of religious identity among people that was exclusive and not inclusive. And so the concept that there is any unifying religious viewpoint in the Constitution is problematic, but what I just described was the founding, the diversity of the founding, which was also quite Jewish, not in the Bible sense, but there were Jews here. There was true diversity at the founding of the United States, but it's now extraordinary diversity. We now have over 100,000 sects. You can't even keep up with it. Diana Eck at, the, at, the, at Harvard is, does, does a wonderful job of trying to keep up with the extraordinary diversity of religion in the United States. And what is the diversity of religion in the United States? It's as if, if you disagree, you just start your own group. That's the American religious experiment. It is not that there is any kind of unity. 
But I especially want to take issue with the concept that the framing, the moment of the framing, the framers were discussing the Bible. I've read all of it. No, they weren't. My favorite story from the framing of the United States Constitution across the mall was when it was suggested that they were just not getting along, and so maybe they needed a clergy person to open up their deliberations with a prayer. And then they all looked around and they realized that nobody was going to pay a member of the clergy. And that was the end of that discussion. <laughs> there was no opening prayer. There was no clergy person invited. In my view, yes, original sin plays in, but it becomes secularized at the convention. It's not because they were debating or even thinking in these terms. It's because the majority of framers were trained by Calvinists. A majority of the framers like Madison that went to college went and studied with Witherspoon at what is now Princeton at that point was called the College of New Jersey. What Witherspoon taught was the following, a heavy dose of Calvinism, don't trust anybody, divide power because anybody that holds power is going to abuse it. Right. That is the brilliance of the American Constitution. Not original sin, it's you just can't trust anybody. And that is what animates the entire Constitutional Convention, that you can't trust anybody, that anybody who holds power. But what, what the thing, and I'll close with this because I know I'm taking up too much time, the, the thing that I have to take the most exception on is the concept that republicanism is Christian. In fact, what Witherspoon taught, and I've read them all, what he taught in his lectures is the following. The government is like a watch. It's like a machine. And what we need to do is experiment. We need to put the pieces together. And there are three pieces that are equally valuable. You can have direct democracy. You can have republicanism, which is representative democracy. And you can have a monarchy. And what he taught Madison, and what Madison led everyone at the convention to discuss, was that government is just a matter of putting this watch together with pieces. None of them were better than the others. And the question was, can you find an experiment that works? And because you're fallible, it may not work. That was the animating thought of the convention. That's why there was so much debate about how do you stop abuses of power? What pieces do you put together? That's why there were framers who were still in favor of a monarchy at the convention. So, so I, I, I have to say I deeply disagree with the, with the notion that there is a unified Bible, that there is a unified Christianity at the start, but, but especially with the concept at the convention. They didn't discuss the Bible. And in fact, if you read it closely, they really didn't care. They just didn't care about it. What they cared about was the United States was about to dissolve. They were in an emergency. They didn't know if they were going to succeed. And they had to figure out some kind of mechanism that might put it all together. So, Jeffrey, could so, I please, follow please, up on that? Please, please do and let me set it up by saying you have the title for your next piece, How Jewish Were the Founders? <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 Not but, the framers, but the founders. The founders. Right. But you, you heard Marcy's powerful point, and, and the strong challenge she makes is that when the religious ideas of different varieties were uh, expressed in the Constitution, they were essentially secularized or filtered through this Calvinistic general mistrust of human nature that was not sectarian in any particular way. What is your sense of that? Uh, well, I, I just wanted to follow up on her point by making the observation that we 
look back 200 plus years at the founders and the framers, and this is our context. This is where, how, we, how we determine our own meaning. They were doing the same thing. They were looking back over the previous century and a half or so, which happened to be the great age of intolerance and religious warfare in Europe. And when people slaughtered one another, and by and large, there were Christians slaughtering other Christians. And uh, my um, expertise in history is really in the 17th century and in the, the Dutch period, the, du the period when the Dutch founded uh, the colony of New Netherland, which became New York. Um, and the Dutch in the 1570s, uh, in the middle of their war, their brutal, bloody war of independence against Spain, which lasted 80 years. And by the way, that was a war that the American founders looked at as a model for their republic because these were independent states that were banded together to fight uh, uh, for independence. In the middle of that, Spain launches the Inquisition on them. This blood, because while they were fighting for independence, the Dutch colonies were then uh, uh, converting to Calvinism. So there's this bloody horrific uh, result. And as a result of that, the Dutch craft this notion of freedom of conscience which is really a watershed where, where they say, you will not be persecuted because of your faith. And it comes out of this hard experience. And that is one of the episodes that is the beginning of the Dutch Enlightenment, which then seeds the wider European and ultimately the American Enlightenment. And it's that kind of experience that was in the background that they were, that the founders of the American, and the founders and the framers were looking at when, and that they had in mind as they were trying to put something together that could withstand those kinds of forces. Um, Daniel, you are, as it happens, uh, a fellow of the Witherspoon uh, Institute. Uh, Marcy mentioned that studying with Witherspoon at Princeton, the framers adopted this Calvinistic uh, mistrust of human nature. And my question uh, uh, to you is to what degree was the, to what degree was there belief in freedom of conscience rooted in an idea of natural law that did depend on some idea of a creator, even if it was non-sectarian. The Virginia Declaration of Rights of 1776 says, religion or the duty which we owe to our creator must be founded on reason and conviction, not by force or violence. And you've quoted Jefferson's declaration about unalienable rights. So is it right to say that the basic notion of rights, of natural rights, came from God or nature, not from government? And in that sense, uh, the framers were influenced by faith. Oh, well, well absolutely. I, I think that's right. And um, Michael Sandel, who's a professor, famous professor at Harvard, who's certainly not part of the Christian right or any conservative conspiracy, uh, has a really important article. I mean, again, uh, important among us academics uh, who study this kind of thing, religious liberty, talking about uh, the difference between what we sometimes mean now when we say freedom of conscience, which is the freedom to do whatever I feel like, uh, versus uh, the understanding that informed the founders and that led them to put these kinds of protections in documents, whether that was state constitutions or our national constitution. Uh, the idea um, that conscience requires us to do something uh, that we have no choice but to do. Uh, the reason the law makes an exception, let's say, for in freedom of religion for Sabbath observers uh, and not just for people who prefer to shop on a Saturday or a Sunday or something like that is because they're differently situated, because they feel they have no choice but to observe that day. And of course, um, the natural law and uh, canon law in the church, in the Catholic church, uh, developed 
um, simultaneously, and certainly the idea of having a duty um, that which one cannot but do um, starts with the idea of having, having a duty to God. I mean, the duty to a conscience before a duty to God um, certainly existed among you know, pre-Jewish, pre-Christian Greeks, um, uh, but also came to the West certainly uh, through Christianity. Um, it's interesting that it, it may very well be, I think it's an exaggeration to say that uh, the founders, maybe for rhetorical effect, that the founders didn't even care uh, about, or the framers didn't care uh, about the Bible. But I don't think the point is only whether they were discussing the Bible as the Bible. Um, there's, uh, it, um, in the 20th century, it was very popular to explore the classical roots, which is to say the Greek and Roman roots uh, of the American founding and even uh, of the framing. Uh, and uh, as a result of this, in the late 20th century, uh, a small field in the history of political thought arose called political Hebraism. And the scholars of political Hebraism, and I'm sure, of course, Dr. Dreisbach is, is aware of this, the, uh, the, the scholars of political Hebraism were saying, well, sure, there are classical roots to the American founding, but there are also Hebraic roots. And by Hebraic, interestingly, um, they meant a biblical, certainly, um, but also rabbinic uh, or Talmudic. It's interesting that John Locke, a Christian in England, thought it was worth it uh, to learn Hebrew. Uh, so that he could read uh, the Hebrew Bible in the original. Um, people of that generation, English and Dutch uh, political thinkers of the early modern period, um, who were even studying the Talmud. Uh, and, and remarkable to think they were doing this. So it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily come down to um, whether they were reading the Bible uh, in the narrow sense or discussing it, but their political thought was steeped in the concepts that came uh, from those areas, not those, con not those alone. It's obvious that the mix of monarchy, rep republicanism, and direct democracy also comes to us from Rome. The Senate's called the Senate for a reason, um, but there were other sources as well. Political Hebraism. I'm, this is just getting so Jewish, Marcy. I love it. But what, I didn't start it. No, you didn't start it. But it, but what do you? What should we make of this claim? That uh, what would you make of this proposition? That Jefferson, like the founders and framers, believed that our rights came from God or nature, not from government. That this conception of natural law was ecumenical enough to include Jews as well as Christians as well as other uh, people of faith but that in that sense, the founders did have a conception of rights that stemmed from the divine. I, I think it's a vast and unfortunate overstatement that unfortunately plays into current politics. Um, I mean, I'm gonna to have to be completely honest here, which of course I never am. Um, but <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am deeply concerned that the Liberty Bell and Carpenter Hall and the National Constitution Center are going to be joined by a Faith and Liberty Center. I have to say, that is, that is a product of today, of the attempt to take over the concept of the culture as though it is just Christian, as though it is just faith. What gives me real hope, though, is my students. I teach law, religion, and politics at Penn. And my students overwhelmingly just don't have much time for organized religion. And of course, that's what the Pew Foundation re has repeatedly found. Organized religion, the notion that there is a, uh, you know, a book that has all the answers is not consistent with their viewpoint. Their viewpoint is very consistent with the founding and framing generation, which was deist, heavily deist people who believed in a greater power but did not believe 
in the specifics of the Bible, and they didn't have a lot of time for it. Deism controlled the intellectuals, the literati at the time. And so, you know, I, I think that we want to be very careful. There is no question the Bible has been extremely powerful and a powerful force in the United States, but so has Greek and Roman history. I completely agree with that, especially at the time uh, of the framing and those sitting in the, in the room framing the Constitution. I think they were more thoughtful and thinking about Rome and Greece than they were thinking about Christianity or about uh, what, what the Bible would require or would want them to do. But again, I'm going to emphasize my resistance, my deepest resistance, is the concept that there was a concept at the convention that religion provided a, a special preference for republicanism, or that Christianity did. It just, if you read the notes of the debates, that's just not what you get. If you read, uh, and we'll go out of the, we'll do a framer, but out of the convention, James Madison and the memorial and remonstrance, what was his greatest fear? And this goes to the whole concept of this awareness of um, assault and abuse of, of religious believers. One of the most important lines in the memorial and remonstrance is Madison's fear of clericalism, his deep fear of the Inquisition. What he said was that it is possible to recreate the Inquisition in the United States. That's basically what he said. It is an amazing section that no one wants to talk about because it is scary. And what he's saying is too much power to religious entities is a problem. So what I would look at at the Constitutional Convention and what they feared the most was a union of power between church and state. And I fear that we are now getting incapable of talking about the separation of church and state. The framers got it. They had to get the separation of church and state because so many of them had escaped. The problem is for the ones who escaped Europe where they were being treated so badly, too many of them came over and they didn't know any other way. So what they sought out was their own universe where they in turn treated non-believers or anti whatever their faith was badly. It took us a long time to come up with how to live together as a diverse country. So my fear is that we make the mistake of thinking that there was a unified set of thoughts. There was one book that was preeminent over the Constitution. Uh, it's just not borne out by the history. Uh, Russell, what, what, what is deism? And what were the strains of it? And did the deists who thought uh, believed in a watchmaker God, some doubted the divinity of Christ, others uh, accepted it but doubted some of the miracles. Describe the range of thoughts of what deism meant and what the implications um, are. I'll, I'll go back to Spinoza because I think it kind of originates there. Uh, and again, back in the 17th century in the Dutch context, um, he conceived, he, he feared uh, a lot of organized religion because it was human controlled and because it, was, it contained what he called superstition. Uh, so he tried to create a, uh, a view of God that was sort of impossible not to believe in. God is um, 
God is nature, sort of super nature. It is nature and everything that we can think of that happened, that just goes on. And therefore, we are part of it, and therefore, you can't not believe in this God. And so I think de American deism comes, comes out of that. And if you just backing up and looking at it in philosophical terms, the way philosophers look at human conception of reality, you've got the ph phenomena, the world of phenomena, things that we can touch and feel, and noumena, that which we can't, but which we somehow feel and want to interact with. And I think there's the false dichotomy when it comes to dealing, trying to understand the generation that created the American project, that it had to be one or the other, that they had to either support this reason project, or, or they had, and therefore they were just giving lip service to Christianity, or the other way around, as some would put it. And it's possible, it is possible to do both. It is possible to hold both of those conceptions in your mind, and it was possible for many of them. Many of them may have been closet atheists, but didn't want to assert it because it wasn't uh, politically correct. But uh, in different measures, you see different ones. Uh, the, maybe the most famous example is Thomas Jefferson's Bible, which he did a couple different versions of, where he basically cut out all of the miracles and just lined up Jesus' sayings, Jesus' philosophy. That was his very tangible way of dealing with this, you know, saying, my re it's an affront to my reason, which I, going, following in this tradition that I uh, believe in very, uh, very uh, sincerely, uh, it's an affront to my reason to think that someone literally walked on water. Um, however, I'm a Christian, and here's, so here is the Here's the Jesus, here's the Christianity that I believe in. And basically, we all do things like that, whether we're Christians or Jews or non-believers. I mean, we have our, our uh, I mean, my father was a, has been a Catholic all his life, but he, I never once remember him going to church. I think that's, you know, people make their accommodations. The, the, the founding father that I have studied the most is Washington. And Washington, his mother... Uh, was very devout, but she was idiosyncratic, to say the least. She was kind of a backwoods woman. She would go to a place of rocks and trees and pray. So she would kind of, it's, you get this feeling of, you know, her own kind of deism almost. Uh, Washington himself, when people observed him, uh, he, he belonged to church. He, he, he went to church irregularly, but he went throughout his life. Uh, and yet he wouldn't kneel. He always stood. Um, he wouldn't take communion. His wife would go to communion, but he wouldn't take communion. Um, so he had his accommodations, which again, again, I think, are his way of, of trying to square this circle, of trying to have it both ways. Daniel, I must ask more about Jews and the founding because I'm really <laughs> interested in it. So Russell has just said that uh, you know Spinoza, of course, was the uh, proto-deist or an inspiration of, of that uh, conception. And were uh, Jews at the framing more theistic, uh, or were there some uh, Jewish deists? And say more about this incredibly provocative suggestion that uh, ancient uh, Israel was the perfect republic in the sense of the first representative uh, democracy. Sure. Well, I, I, and I confess that that is not, uh, though obviously Jewish, uh, I don't specialize in the Jewish founders. <laughs> Or anything uh, of that sort. We've got to um, start up a roadshow. And so, yeah, no, that's that's fine. I think in any case, I think it's going to fall to the Orthodox join the stage to defend Christian America. So I'll get to that next. Um, uh, 
I, uh, I there were. I mean, the, no, the the Jews, um, uh, no, the Jews at the founding were not uh, necessarily more orthodox. I mean, they may have been observant in their ways, but they were also, in some ways, products uh, of the same environment. It wasn't the uh, more, as we say, like old world Jews who came over uh, in the 20th century. Jews also wanted to come to America, and I, I don't not describing necessarily every single one in the United States, but wanted to come to America and be part of the American society uh, and assimilate, again, not assimilate to the uh, degree that they are today, but in, in their own time, uh, they, they were modern. Um, uh, there are definitely uh, resources out there that one can find on uh, Jewish influences uh, on the founding. Uh, Mayor Soloveitchik, who's a, a rabbi in, in New York City, uh, has a, a series of lectures um, on this sort of thing. Um, as far as, the, uh, as, far as the, the Jewish Republic, I would only have to assume um, that imagining the Hebrew Republic as, um, as the, the first or only perfect republic was really one of those in theory but not in practice, right? All the Bible is, the Jewish Bible, is just a story of the Jews messing up. Right. Uh, so, right, it's just one, uh, right, it's one, one wayward generation after the next, right? And uh, God regretting over and over and never giving up, but regretting over and over. Um, and so it'd be hard to find, but it is true in the field of political Hebraism um, that I mentioned, um, certainly focuses on the way Dr. Treisbach talked about separation of powers as an idea. Um, the Acton Institute, uh, which is a partner in the kind of work uh, we're doing tonight, they have a summer program called Acton University. It's, it's open to the public, and I, I teach a couple of courses there each summer, one of which is called uh, Judaism and the Idea of Limited Government. And there are a whole, I would certainly not make the claim um, that Judaism is the sole or primary source of limited government. And nevertheless, there are certainly uh, biblical and rabbinic ideas, strands, um, that support that kind of thinking. Um, if I may, just because uh, shots were fired, uh, and there's, there's a lot that I, uh, 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 that I disagree with, and I won't, um, I won't nearly try to touch on everything, but to really come to the bigger point that connects to the lecture, um, I think there is a bigger project and a bigger picture here, but I don't think it's captured by um, certainly not an attempt to Christianize uh, America, and certainly not... Um, uh, certainly not by an attempt to say that all the, all the founders uh, were of one mind when it came to religion or the Bible or something like that. Um, I think that the, uh, so let me get at it this way. I think that the uh, most important debate going on today in political theory, maybe that's where you fall asleep, but I know that's not, <laughs> not necessarily not the because center. the most important debate of political theory is actually not the debate between conservatives and progressives, though that debate surely in our country is the loudest, the most rancorous, and in the short term, the most consequential, but actually a debate um, that's getting a little bit louder and going on among conservatives. At the beginning of this uh, calendar year, if I'm correct, uh, Yale University Press published a book by uh, Patrick Deneen, a professor at uh, Notre Dame, uh, called Why Liberalism Failed. And, and just to be clear here, uh, he doesn't mean liberalism as in MSNBC, Barack Obama, that sort of thing. He means, uh, he means uh, classical liberalism, which is to say the kind of liberalism we associate with the founders and with John Locke. And his claim is further than the anti-federalists, not just that a commercial republic um, is, is dangerous for virtue, um, but that a regime focused on individual liberty um, is dangerous for virtue. Um, conservatives today typically say that the problems we have in America are because we've strayed from our founding and our founding principles. That's a standard thing you'd hear. The argument to conservatives like Deneen is, in fact, that the problems we, have in problems we have today in America are a playing out of fulfillment of the principles adopted at the founding, that the world we live in today in our country is the fruit of the poisonous tree. How so? 
uh, because the founding was too much John Locke uh, and not enough Christianity or religion, or it's not that he's particularly concerned with Christianity necessarily in the narrow sense, um, but, but what, with what the pre-modern world represented in terms of authority, community, and tradition. Why? Uh, we see so many commenters, commentators today um, who talk about the way our obsession with autonomy has led citizens to be less happy, uh, less productive, morally adrift, and so on and so on and so on. This is uh, a lot written about. This is our modern or maybe our, our post-modern world. Um, and uh, whether our current condition is in fact a betrayal of the founding or a fulfillment of the founding depends on what you think of the founding. Uh, is the founding too much John Locke, uh, too much individual liberty and not enough authority, community, and tradition? Uh, or or um, which is it, too much individual liberty uh, or, um, or not? Um, and that depends, and I think someone like Dr. Dreisbach, uh, for those of us like me, um, who are not with Patrick Dean, though I respect him and like him very much, and I think it's a great conversation. I don't agree with him, and I think we should fight uh, to save uh, what's good about our founding uh, rather than scrap it and start all over. If that were not the case, I wouldn't be wearing a tie whose pattern is entirely comprised of 1776 over and over again. I don't <laughs> nice. know if C-SPAN can get close enough, but you may not want to um, for other reasons. Um, Why not 1787 for next yeah, time? Yeah. Right, no, I, I know that, but I didn't have a 1787 <laughs> tie. Uh, I assume I I'm getting we, that we got cheap in the yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Half um, price for you. So, um, but I'm aware, I'm okay. aware. Uh, and I think that um, for those of us not on that side, I think Dr. Dreisbach gives us hope, not because he tells us that the founders were of one mind, or not because he's part of, a, of an effort uh, to restore the idea of Christian America, overturn separation of church and state, uh, but because he gives us hope for those who want to defend the founding, um, that religion, uh, including the Christian religion, of course, especially the Christian religion, was deeply important to the founding, and the Constitution we inherited, not as a document seen as a vacuum, black and white on text, but the whole political tradition we inherited, and its institutions, and its systems uh, are not so Lockean, which is to say so individualistic, that it necessarily corrupts uh, the non-political institutions that are necessary for virtue, authority, community, tradition. Um, and so I think that's probably where I would see the most important um, and hopefully intended contribution uh, of the project. But where do you go with that exactly? Where do you go with that notion that, 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 there, that, that there is this, I mean, what I, what I found in Dr. Dreisbach's uh, presentation was uh, the idea that, well, religion, I mean, it's almost like saying the, the framers breathed oxygen and therefore oxygen is part of you know, the American Constitution. I mean, well, it's... I'm pretty it's, sure we can distinguish between intellectual influences and biological necessities. Well, but if right? we're talking about influences that were not conscious, I mean, well, well conscious. It, I guess, well, I guess, that, I guess that's a pretty good debate. No, that's, I think that's a pretty good debate. I think that a lot of what we heard in the lecture showed that it was quite conscious. I mean, the, the quoting over and over and over again. Now, you could say quoting it just for effect or quoting it for, you know, as rhetoric, but it seemed to be it was very much in their conscience. But, but, but it wasn't quoted at the convention, right? So we're talking about the framers. They weren't quoting the Bible at the convention. And if your only person is Ben Franklin, He's using it for his own ends. Well, so it, 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 that's, no, that's that, a fact. No, no, and that's a fair point. But I think that's because I think that's because they also respected the political project. They really did believe in religious liberty. They really didn't want a sectarian government. But I'm not arguing that they wanted a sectarian government that they were creating 
Christian America. I doubt that's what I haven't ever spoken to him, but I except to say hello today. But I don't. I doubt that's what. I think what he's what uh, what what they're arguing is that um, the political institutions came from a tradition um, that was biblical and religious, and the institutions reflect those influences in very important ways that mean, at least for my purposes, contra Deneen, um, that we don't live in a system that is necessarily cannibalistic. The classical liberal world does not, as uh, Nick Walterstorff, theologian said, does not cut off the branch on which it sits because it is not so individualistic, so atomizing as to destroy the very virtues that makes an individual liberty-based society possible. I, you know, I've, I'm on the other side of the looking glass. That, 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 that doesn't make any sense under the Constitution. I'm sorry. The, well, go ahead. The Say only why. entities in the United States that are routinely arguing for autonomy from the law are religious entities. They made up something they call the church autonomy doctrine, and they use it to argue they're not liable and they're, they're not responsible and they, don't they can't be sued and they can't be responsible for things like sex abuse of children. So the autonomy is not built into the constitutional interpretation at all. Uh, and in fact, the Supreme Court has rejected it routinely because you can actually find a universe within the Constitution of getting along and operating together and respecting the law. I think where we radically disagree here is on what was going through the minds of the founding and framing generation. And what those who favor this, this worldview of the Christian influence never bring up, but is so important, is what the founding generation feared most was what they called licentiousness. They believed that there was something that was too much liberty. They believed that you could go overboard. They opposed polygamy. They opposed sex with children. They opposed bestiality. They opposed using the Constitution for purposes of serving your own ends. Licentiousness was an evil at the time of the framing. Uh, so the religious liberty that we are experiencing right now, the arguments which are, as you said, that I, can, I have to do whatever it is my faith tells me to do, was flatly rejected at the time of the framing. They believed in limits on action. They believed in the rule of law. They believed in what makes the system operate. Uh, and it wasn't just because they were religious. It was because they understood tyranny, because they came from tyranny. So I, I think that the, the, you know, the, I understand this is a debate right now over autonomy, but it's not in constitutional interpretation. Okay, I just want to cut, just on the autonomy point, just as a very narrow, when I used the term autonomy, I certainly didn't mean anything about the autonomy of religious groups. I meant the philosophical idea of individual autonomy, the debate we have today about whether, um, whether human beings are truly the authors of all meaning and all values, or whether those, the, that meaning values come from somewhere else, whether that's a, a, the, a theological God with a capital G, or whether that's the natural law. Um, but certainly the idea that licentiousness was an evil comes from two sources. It comes from Plato and Aristotle on one hand. Licentiousness. And then, and what? Licentiousness. Licentiousness, right. yes. Not um, 
uh, yes, was right. That the, the classical distinction for in the, in the classical tradition was between liberty and license. Uh, just as That's you right. said, right? Liberty, which was the freedom to do good, and license, which is the freedom to do anything you please, uh, right. including the the uh, um, the things that you mentioned. Certainly, uh, famously prohibited by the Bible against pagan society uh, of its time. Um, and the two sources were Plato and Aristotle on one hand, and Moses and Jesus, you know, representing greater traditions on the other hand. Um, that's where the founders, the idea, that le the idea of evil, I mean, this is, where, uh, this is certainly where they got those ideas. And true, they wanted ordered liberty. I couldn't agree with you more. But they wanted ordered liberty because they understood these ideas about virtue that were at once classical, Greek and Roman, and, and The, the idea that and. moral precepts of that generation go back, ultimately, to <laughs> biblical concepts, again, to me, seems completely non-controversial. It's right. just a matter of if there was, as I think you're saying, some kind of overt project among them to take elements that were biblical and put them into the framing of the nation, uh, what, what is, the, according to that logic, what is behind that? You mean, why did they believe in ordered liberty? Why, why did they want no, ordered liberty? No, I mean, that's, that's a, a reasonable sort of universal value. But well, universal on what basis? It's an it's innovation not, of the West. It's hardly a universal value. It's an innovation either of the Greeks and the Romans well, it, we or now of the Jews and the Christians. A, yeah, right. Yeah. But in totally both of those, universal. it would have come from both of those streams to them. Oh, absolutely. Yo, I, that's why I'm, I'm certainly, the, what we're calling the political, uh, the, sorry, the classical and the Hebraic traditions, uh, absolutely both fed but into it. But my point is, not, so yeah. what? I mean, we, we know that they had these traditions behind them. End of story. And they, and they used those building blocks to create this new kind of system, which was, right, so and, I you two one, argue that. Yeah, and right. I think one of the quotes that, uh, that Dr. Dreisbeck uh, uh, referred to in his lecture uh, was something like a godless framework, meaning the Constitution, and it, my, what immediately came to my mind was, it's possible to have a biblical background and using elements of that create a godless framework for a moral society. Oh yeah, th absolutely. That's completely that, that's completely fine and agreed. But it depends what we mean by godless society. Um, no moral it, society. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, a, mor a godless framework. I'm sorry, you said godless framework for moral society. Sure, in the sense that nothing was required of religion. I'm completely with you on religious freedom and how religious freedom is the first bulwark against tyranny. Uh, in, in, no, well, we partly, don't agree on that in, at all. No. I would never say that. Okay, but <laughs> but uh, sorry, taking from the point that you said about religious groups that are the ones that are pushing back the most against government or no. Uh, no no, 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 no. I, no, you misunderstood. Religious groups are the ones abusing their current power too much. Ah, okay, that I thought was it was something point. else you said. In any case. Um, That's a different point. Uh, That's the uh, framer's uh, point. I thought I agreed with one thing you said about religious freedom, but maybe not. No. Um, <laughs> Definitely uh, not. Uh, in, in any case, um, I think the point is that they still recognize that the godless framework for a moral society require, right, if, if all three branches conspire together to despoil the nation, they can do that. I mean, at least maybe until the next election, but probably even so. If they cancel the elections, or who knows what. And so it's required, uh, and they, so they knew that no design could survive without underlying virtue, and they believed that the virtue also required religion. The only natural law at That's the National Constitution Center is that uh, discussions must end on time. <laughs> <laughs> this one is not is easy precept? to summarize, except that it has been superbly lively, and our evolution from the question of whether uh, the founding was uh, too uh, Christian to the question of whether it was not Christian enough uh, reminds all of us how much more we have to learn 
friends, National Constitution Center members, learners of all ages, you must read to educate yourselves about these debates so that you can make up your own mind. You must read Daniel Dreisbach's Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, Marcy Hamilton's God versus the Gavel, The Perils of Extreme Religious Liberty, Russell Shorto's Revolution Song, A Story of American Freedom, and anything written by Daniel Mark. Please join me in thanking our panelists. This program was presented in partnership with the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center in Philadelphia. Today's episode was edited by David Stotts and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. 